Marini's Media. First, the Bundesliga, now that cat making saves on social media. There's no question, football is back. And today's totally can't wait for more of this crazy kickball stuff. In the meantime, we're looking back to Champions League 2001-2002. ZZ Top and Neverkusen. And pointing you at the Bundesliga action to savour this weekend in Germany. Plus, we'll be bringing you a brand new semi-final in the quiz. Coxie v Lang. Will Lang get Cox out or will Michael see Jack off? What? It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Mm, that's rhymes there with some valuable social protocols. Hello, listener. Thanks for joining us. A very warm welcome to, to Duncan Alexander. Hi, James. Hello. Raphael Honigstein. Hello. Hello. And Alvaro Romeo. Hello, James. Hello. How are you all doing? Good. good. Hot. Yeah. It's a scorcher. Let's start with a bit of news, shall we, eh? Scotland, the SPFL, joining Belgium, Netherlands, France, National League and League Two in declaring this season over. Means that Celtic have won their ninth title in a row and Hearts, who were top of the table 18 months ago, have been relegated. You can hear more about all that on the Totally Scottish Football Show out now. You can also hear on the Offside Rule podcast, which is out on Friday, what the WSL are going to do with their future. But what about the Premier League? Where are we at, Duncan? Well, the teams have all been tested, apart from, well, Norwich have been tested, but they uh, they did theirs on a different day, which was Maverick, at the, at the least. Um, seems like Watford and Burnley were the, the hardest hit in positive tests, which is interesting because the Watford-Burnley game at Vicarage Road this season has got the lowest ball in playtime of any match this season, just over 43 minutes. So maybe running around away from your opponent is, uh, is actually a good thing. Um, Burnley uh, assistant Ian Wone, last seen uh, as the most creative player in the Premier League in 1995, he had the most assists. Who would have thought 25 years later he would be testing positive for COVID-19? Well, best wishes to Ian. Yeah, definitely. Although I think he's Mm. asymptomatic, so he's probably doing okay. Okay. Uh, Rafa, with this this process now begun and some training in restricted numbers, how far are we away, you know, using the Bundesliga roadmap, as a guide, how far are we away from things actually getting back underway in England? Well, there's not that many steps actually left. I mean, now that uh, training has resumed in small groups, you can then look forward to full contact training with the whole group as as your next and, and penultimate step before games will be resumed, I guess. The idea is first to get a lot of tests out of the way, make sure that you do find asymptomatic players and staff members. Once that happens, then you can increase and ramp up the contact as you will because you are fairly secure that the people who are left out there on the pitch or, or near the near the team are, are negative. I think the issue is, is less to do with the testing regime and the uh, the government stance and more with the Premier League themselves agreeing the right way forward in terms of the timing when the game should come back etc. But as long as the government are supportive and they seem to be broadly supportive of the Premier League coming back I don't see that there's actually going to be on the medical, on the protocol side, too much of a delay. 
I think, James, as well, that uh, we still have to hear from the players. I mean, there have been a number of them, uh, Troy Dini being one of them, but also Sterling, uh, Glenn Murray, Danny Rose, that have shown uh, some doubts about uh, returning uh, to playing football. And uh, I believe that uh, how the clubs deal with that is going to be key as well. In Spain, we have had a case of uh, a player from Cadiz in the second division who a couple of uh, weeks ago, he was totally against playing and he was very vocal, but thanks to the to the job of uh, Cadiz president and the psychologist of the club, he got persuaded finally that uh, actually going back to playing football wasn't that dangerous. And I think that uh, there will be plenty of job uh, for the club psychologist with certain players who are um, definitely not ready to play or mentally mentally ready to play. Okay, well, as you mentioned, Troy Deeney among the most vocal uh, in their reluctance to go back to training. He says he won't be this week, citing concerns for his family, in particular his infant son, Troy, saying it only takes one person to get infected and I don't want to bring that home. You probably saw this. He mentioned the heightened risk to black, Asian and minority ethnicity players and he also summed things up pithily by saying, I can't get a haircut until mid-July, but I can go and get in a box with 19 people and go and jump for a header. Nobody can answer my questions, not because they don't want to, just because they don't know the information. Hey, you know what? He should go and talk to Serge Aurier because he did get a haircut this week. I know that because he wisely posted it on Instagram and is now facing a fine from Tottenham for breaking lockdown rules for the third time. Yeah, he wasn't the only person uh, that that's happened to. Jordan I, but Bournemouth has done exactly the same thing. And we've also seen the opposite, where a lot of players have come back to training who clearly haven't had a haircut. Uh, Sadio Mane, chief among them as well. So that's something nice to look at. Rafa, uh, we'll talk more about the fixtures coming up this weekend. We, the huge ones in the Bundesliga. You've got Berlin Derby Friday night and then Saturday the top two in action ahead of the Klassiker. Uh, Wolfsburg taking on Dortmund while Bayern will be facing Eintracht Frankfurt. Previews of those games later on. But how's the reaction been this week uh, to the return of Bundesliga action at the weekend? I think people were kind of surprised to some extent how they were able to get into it and at least not have a sense that this is totally unwatchable. Um, the numbers were incredibly high in Germany. Of course, it helped that Schalke Dortmund was, was such a huge draw on Saturday afternoon. Uh, and of course, at the same time, the opposition from the ultras, from the, the organized fans, uh, will only intensify. They, they still don't like what is happening. I think they don't like the fact that people might actually be softening their attitude towards this and, um, and, and kind of get used to it and accommodate themselves, uh, if you will, with this. No one's pretending that this is an ideal solution and this is somehow going to be now fine until the end of the season. I think the clubs are still very careful to make the point that this is an emergency measure and should only be seen as such. But of course, the Bundesliga success, if you will, in, in ratings worldwide and the attention that they got and the so far broadly positive uh, PR, at least for the moment, seems to suggest that you know they got, they got the basics right. What would the ultras prefer then? Would they prefer the season just to be stopped? Yeah, they prefer football only to come back when it's safe to do so. Um, no one's really been able to put forward a scenario where that is actually financially possible. But the ultras have said, well, look, um, it's, it's not our problem. It's football's problem if they can't afford three or four months out because the wages are so high. Maybe you should uh, reform the system. Maybe you should change things. Maybe players should take a 50 or 60% pay cut and wait. I, I don't think it's a realistic proposal, but it is sort of ideologically um, 
sound if you will i mean that is their position and i don't think they really are concerned so much whether this can actually be done or not i think it's important for them to voice uh, that opposition which is a kind of fundamental one if you will and then see when football can come back i mean there is some interesting development in germany because the economy is opening up very very rapidly now um, some prime ministers from the federal states have actually talked about some fans at restricted numbers coming back maybe as early as September uh, with social distancing. So I don't know, uh, an 80,000 ground would maybe hold 20,000 people. Whether that is logistically possible or not, uh, it remains to be seen. But I think there is some movement uh, towards that. And um, if the Bundesliga can keep playing without any major interruptions, I think that might create its own momentum to maybe hasten the return of fans. Well, another round set to get underway this Friday evening with the Berlin Derby. We'll talk more about all of that later on. Let's have a few tweets before we get on to the semi-final action in the Intertotally. Uh, here's AFC Patch who asks, is there a more poignant retirement note than the one written this week by Aritz Aduris of Athletic Bilbao? Alvaro, who was due to maybe sign off with the all Bas Copa del Rey final, but now says he won't be doing any of that because he needs a new hip. Yeah, it's very poignant and it's a real shame that he has to retire without playing what it was supposed to be his last uh, professional football game, the Spanish Cup final against Real Sociedad. Uh, Aritz Aduriz was born in Guipúzcoa, um, San Sebastián is the capital of that province, so it would have been a very special game for him. And uh, yeah, he basically he didn't retire from football. Football retired him from playing because mm. uh, he had a problem with his keep and he thought that he wasn't uh, capable of sustaining the the level that he's been keeping for the last uh, five, six years. Um, it came as a surprise for everyone. Uh, we knew that uh, Ari Chaduriz had some uh, physical problems, but still, uh, there was this hope that uh, having this uh, huge window due to the coronavirus to recover your body, to get the right treatment and all that, uh, Aduriz could finish the last third of the season and play it, but uh, unfortunately he said that he retires and uh, it's a goodbye to a great legend of Athletic de Bilbao. Uh, he scored in total more than 200 uh, career goals uh, for Athletic, Valencia, Mallorca. And um, yeah, he will be missed in Bilbao because uh, there is not a player like him in Athletic de Bilbao, neither in the academy. So there's no one like Aduriz that Athletic de Bilbao can buy now. They just have to produce a player like that. And producing a player like that uh, may take like six, seven, eight years. Very poignant. Joseph Moore says, will the pandemic and its long-term effects close the gap between the top clubs and the others or will it widen the gap? This maybe touches on what Rafa was saying about the ultras' views on how football should evolve in Germany. What do you think, Duncan? Well, you'd imagine it would widen the gap in the sense that you know the big clubs are able to weather weather the storm and you know we don't really know i mean league one we still don't know how it's going to finish this season you know you've got five or six clubs who who are so desperate for promotion they they don't want the season to end even though it's not really you know realistic for it to be played out so yeah i think it was going to be a lot of changes in football over the next 10 years but i think this is going to massively accelerate them uh, it is it is too early definitely to outline a tendency, but uh, we have seen this weekend in Bundesliga that uh, the home advantage doesn't count or didn't count last weekend a lot. I don't know if that is going to play against uh, those small clubs who rely on their home crowd to avoid relegation. Yeah, I think it's it's a bit early to say um, that this is definitely an effect, but I think you're right, uh, Alvaro, it's not just 
home clubs, I think it's teams in general who have to rely on, on the crowd to push them, whether even the, it might be the opposition crowd, and who can't rely on the quality and the technical style of, of their team, that they, they will suffer more. I think that is the, certainly the early indication. Sample size will be increased this weekend with a fresh set of Bundesliga matches, uh, which we'll talk about, as I say, later on. We're also going to be having a look at Champions League Chapter 10 with Brawls, Balls and Metatarsals on the road to Glasgow and the Zidane final. Next up, though, it's our second semi-final in the Intertotally. On Spotify, Smart Speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. All right. Sunday saw Daniel Storey realise his childhood dream of a place in the Intertotally Cup final. Today, the second semi-final gets underway. Uh, once again, it's a two-legged affair and it features a clash of quiz colossi. Let's meet them. Up first, he's the man with the best track record in this competition by fair means and indeed foul. Still the dirtiest player in the game and no, he ain't never gonna say sorry. Don't you dare cheer him. He is Jack El Loco Langa. Jack, people really need to let all that go, yeah? I'm actually enjoying it now. I'm, I'm, Are you? I'm going to take this all the way through, yeah. If I can do Michael today in a really dirty way, I certainly will. With some ranked gamesmanship. Because you've been studying up on some of the other dirty techniques used by you, you, your, your rivals in the quiz, no? Let's name I've some got, names. I've got a couple of theories but I, I wouldn't want to go into them on air. We'll, we'll keep that I, to the just behind the kind the of repeating the question, telling you the answers that aren't correct. Yeah, Daniel's very good at buying himself time by by delivering what he knows are incorrect answers and tells you so, but very slowly, which uh, it's quite clever. I might adopt that myself. Nice. All right. Well, you're going to need every trick at your disposal, Jack, when we hear about who you're going to be up against. opponent. He's the pre-tournament favourite who's yet to hit the heights listeners expect. Is he robo-doping? Is he saving himself for the big finish? But in the word semi into semi-final it is Michael Cox! Cox semi yup. Okay Michael nice to have you back on the show. Yeah thank you. Pleased to be back. Good. Everyone's assuming that you've got extra gears but you might well be needing them today. Jack as you probably spotted is the semi-finalist with the highest cumulative score so far, whereas you, Michael, are the semi-finalist with the lowest. Yeah, no, I'm going to have to be on the top of my game today. I know that, um, you know, even if I get 9 out of 10, there's every chance that Jack will get 9.0001 out of 10. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be a difficult game. I see. Jack is playing at home today. So that means that you're both answering questions on his special subject. What is that, Jack? Brazil's successful World Cup campaigns. Right. And then, Michael, you'll be replying with what in the second leg? Uh, I've gone for Arsene Wenger era Arsenal. Oh, really? OK. Mm. Should be interesting. Today, though, Brazil's World Cup wins. And, Michael, you're going first. So if you're ready, here comes question one. In only one of Brazil's five World Cup winning campaigns, did one of their players not also win the Golden Ball for player of the tournament? Which one was it? I think I was 2002 because I think Oliver Kahn won it shortly before his mistake for Ronaldo's first goal. You think rightly. 
Question two. Which team is missing from this list of opponents that Brazil have beaten in World Cup finals? Italy, Germany, Sweden, Italy again, and who? Uh, it's not in that, chronological order. Yeah, uh, Czechoslovakia. Correct, in 1962. Question three. Only one player appeared in the final for Brazil in both 1994 and 2002. Who was it? Uh, I think Cafu came on as a sub in 94. So him, Cafu. Correct. Question four on Jack's specialist subject with three out of three so far. Only two players have scored for Brazil in two different World Cup final victories. Pele is one. Who is the other? Uh, the other is Vava. Vava. Correct. Question five. In one of Brazil's World Cup wins, their star player was sent off in the semi-final, but was then cleared by FIFA to play anyway in the final. Who was that player? Sent off in the semi-final, but cleared to play in the final. That's correct. I don't know. Well, I think Pele must have been the star for the first Three World Cup wins. Um, it wasn't two thousand and two. I can I don't remember this happening, but I will guess Romario in ninety four. No, it's some time before that. Nineteen sixty two, Gahincha sent off in the semi final, oh. but cleared by FIFA to appear in the final against the Czechs. Wow! But still, Michael, four out of five on Jack's specialist subject. That's a pretty good start. Yeah, pleased with that. Pleased with that. Yeah, relieved to be over that uh, that hurdle. Jack Lang aiming for 4.1 or above on Brazil's World Cup wins. Question one. Which name is missing from this list of Brazil's World Cup winning captains? Dunga, Hideraldo Bellini, Cafu, Carlos Alberto and who? Uh, it's called Mauro, defender Mauro Hamos. Absolutely correct. Question two. Name the three players that either won or shared the Golden Boot as World Cup top scorer in the years that Brazil won the competition. Um, Ronaldo was one. I think another was Vava. And the third one... So both won the World Cup and finished top scorer, either joint or on his own merit. Uh, Pele? No. The other player was Cahincha uh, in 1962. Yes. Shared it with Vava. Ronaldo, of course, in 2002. Question three then, Jack. In the 1994 World Cup final penalty shootout, which player missed for Brazil? Marcio Santos. Correct. Question four. When Pele got injured in the 1962 World Cup, which player replaced him in the Selecao? Uh, Amarildo. Correct. Question five, then, to match Michael's score. In their World Cup winning campaigns, there are only four opponents that Brazil have failed to beat in open play on their way to the title. England in 58, Sweden in 94, Italy in 94 are three of them. Who is the other team? So a team that Brazil didn't beat in open play, excluding penalties, essentially, on their way to the title. Only four times. 
that's happened. And could you name them again? Eng England? England in 58, Sweden on their way to winning in 94, and Italy in that same tournament. And there's one other team who weren't mm. beaten by a World Cup winning Brazil. Well, that has caught me a bit. Uh, USA? Mm. I'm afraid not, no. It is 1962 and Czechoslovakia. Mm. So at the end of that round, Jack, you've scored three out of five, which means, Michael, you have a one-point lead going into the general knowledge later on. How do you feel? Yeah, please. Uh, I think I did quite well with the questions there. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, looking forward to the general knowledge round. As are we all. It'll be along later on in the show, and we'll see you guys for that then. Wow. Coxie laying down a bit of a gauntlet then, eh? Impressive stuff, no? Yeah, unbelievable. And considering that the questions go back to 1958 as well, and he still yeah. managed to get some right, I mean, I would have never guessed the Czechoslovakia one, to be honest. No, well, fair enough. Uh, only one point in it, though. So we'll see what the general knowledge does later on. Next up, though, listener, you're itching for it. I'm itching for it. It is Champions League Chapter 10. The Bundesliga is back again this weekend, which means more of your mates bluffing about their German football knowledge on Zoom. Yeah, I've always said the Bundesliga is the most balanced league in Europe, isn't it? Balanced? It's football, not tightrope walking. You might think you know about German football, but if you don't, there's always Paddy Power's Acker Cracker. Get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your Acker lets you down on all Bundesliga matches and all markets. Paddy Power! Max free bet £10, 4 plus fold Ackers. Minimum odds 1 to 5 on each leg. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGumbleAware.org on Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere. This is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Roberto Carlos a Solari. Huelga la pelota. Ojo a Zidane. Yep, that's me. I'm a ball that's just been hit by Zinedine Zidane for probably the greatest Champions League goal ever scored in Glasgow. You're probably wondering how I ended up in this situation. Well, the road to Glasgow features mass brawls, a metatarsal, a spoon-bending psychic and possibly German football's biggest bottlers. And it all starts back in August 2001. You had your 32 teams on the starting grid of a brand new Champions League season. Bayern Munich were there, reigning champions of course. European greats Liverpool and Celtic had joined the competition for the first time. Celtic were dreaming of that Glasgow final and so was Sir Alex Ferguson with Man United. Also present, Juve, Roma and Lazio, though again, no Italian side would reach the knockouts. And Real Madrid, for whom Glasgow also had a special significance. Plus, a side called Bayern Leverkusen, who were, Rafa, to single-handedly eliminate all the English clubs in this campaign. Rafa, who were this Bayern Leverkusen? Well, this Bayern Leverkusen were um, the best team after Bayern in, in those years. Um, they were very, very unlucky, which is often forgotten in uh, 2000, uh, 20 years ago yesterday, um, when they travelled to Unterhaching, which is a suburb of Munich, and only needed a draw at the last game of the season. And Michael Ballack scored an own goal, and they conceded a second to lose the championship to Bayern in 2000. And by 2002, that pattern of them being nearly men had already been established to a certain extent. But this was, a, I think, in, football, in a football sense, the most exciting German team in many, many years, especially for neutrals. They had this wonderful blend of, um, of South Americans, 
uh, some young and up-and-coming Germans and some uh, really interesting foreigners as well. I mean, you go through the list of the team, Lucio Zeroberto, Balak Schneider, Bashturk, Berbatov, Neuville. Um, it was a great side, um, really, really great side. And Buttingal, your favorite player. So um, they played some really, really decent stuff. And as you said, I think they surprised everyone and, and made it all the way to the final, which perhaps they should have won as well. Perhaps so. We'll talk about the final subsequently. Managed, of course, by Klaus Topmüller. Now, group stage one began on September the 11th, 2001. And remarkably, most of the games still went ahead that day. Perhaps the magnitude of the terrible events that had taken place was just too vast to take in in the hours that followed. But Real Madrid began their campaign anyway that night in Rome with a 2-1 win. They were soon putting four goals past the Locomotive Moscow and other four past Anderlecht as well. Alvaro Del Bosque in charge now and uh, Zidane, their star signing that summer from Juventus, uh, they were on the hunt for their third title in six years. Yes, and I think that Real Madrid has a very clear idea of what they wanted because if you compare what Barcelona did that summer and what Real Madrid did that summer, Real Madrid targeted only one player, Zinedine Zidane, and signed just one, whereas Barcelona signed like six or seven different players. So at that stage, Real Madrid had a very clear idea of what they wanted and the team had won the league in 2001, I would say that comprehensively, and they were favourites to win that Champions League altogether with the usual suspects. It's funny how Zinedine Zidane started his career at Real Madrid because he, he had a, a bad spell at the beginning and uh, there were even question marks on Zidane and uh, how much he could improve Real Madrid if you think about it now it's just crazy but uh, there is this anecdote as well of um, that has been reported a few times of Zidane just going to Florentino Perez's office uh, in late September that season to complain that Figo wasn't passing the ball to him. So there was a little bit of uh, an ego contest between the players as well. You know, it was the beginning of the Galactico time. And that season ended up uh, working for Real Madrid. Uh, but in the subsequent seasons, it didn't go so well to have so many good players in the same squad. Yeah, because well, we heard the other day about Anelka's issues when he uh, tried to join in with uh, his teammates at Real Madrid. Uh, not the most welcoming of, of locker rooms. Yeah, and well, this story I'm telling you has been reported uh, by different reporters in Spain and I believe that uh, there is a bit of truth uh, in that. I mean uh, there was Figo, the most expensive signing in 2000, then Zidane was the most expensive signing in 2001 and uh, over there there was uh, obviously plenty of good players to put together in the same team and it wasn't easy. Fortunately for Real Madrid they had Vicente del Bosque who is probably the biggest um, pacifier you will find uh, in Spanish football. Well, game of the opening round, meanwhile, featured Zidane's old side, Juventus. And it was probably the best Champions League game seen in Glasgow that season. Puts a free kick in, which beat Trezeguet. Sutton! <laughs> Simply superb! Juve now without Zizou, but still with a mighty lineup, visiting a Celtic team who'd only come through the preliminaries, managing to beat Ajax to get into the group stages for the first time and had a bit of a grudge against Juventus, having been denied, they felt, a point in Turin in their opening group game by a controversial late penalty. Juve, as if to emphasise the point, turning up in Glasgow in an entirely black kit, as if to emphasise their strong links with officialdom. They looked sensational. Alvaro, the game did too. Yeah, it was fantastic. And it all started uh, very promisingly with uh, Alessandro Del Piero scoring a beautiful free kick. It was uh, so strong, so well-placed. And then... Uh, 
Chris Sutton managed to score a brace and one of his volleys was so satisfying in a way to watch because uh, he mm. just hit the ball the way that he wanted and he almost broke the net. It was one of those games that um, probably is very well remembered uh, at Glasgow because it was beautiful and I think Celtic had so many chances as well uh, and they beat a very good Juventus with Del Piero and Trezeguet and some really good stars in there. Nedved, yeah. As well. Yeah, that Sutton volley, one of the top two Champions League volleys that we would see in Glasgow that season. Celtic ending up with nine points in the group, but not managing to qualify. Plenty of teams did, though. Second group stage featured all sorts of delights this season. Amongst them, a remarkable match between Roma and Galatasaray at the Stadio Olimpico in Rome, which ended in a 1-1 draw. But then the real match began as more than 50 players, officials and police officers got involved in a mass ruck. Not kidding, this was genuine violence. It all sparked off after some insults between Roma and Galatasaray players. Uh, Lima starts uh, punching people, then Gabriel Batistuta gets involved, Capello gets involved, Montelic involved. Then you have all these uh, policemen in their blue helmets with truncheons who start wading in and beating up the players and apparently then enter the Galatasaray uh, locker room afterwards to continue their pacifying action with truncheons. The whole thing goes on for about 20 minutes and resulted in... Uh, uh, loads of bands for Roma and absolutely no disciplinary action at all on Galatasaray so that was interesting on field anything we need to talk about from the second group stage a very good goal from Barcelona from that time uh, scored at Anfield uh, I remember that uh, Barcelona touched the ball or did like 29 passes before uh, Mark Overmars scored a beautiful goal uh, against Liverpool I remember that that goal will have a, a lot of heavy praise in, in Spain. And uh, what I want to take away from all that is the fact that Xavi Hernández uh, gave the pass to Mark Overmars because uh, that was the season when uh, the summer before Guardiola had left Barcelona and uh, Xavi was supposed to be the successor of Pep Guardiola. And uh, in that game, he showed uh, the quality that he could bring to a Barcelona team. And uh, let's not forget that Xavi was uh, a controversial player until he was 26-27 because some say that uh, he was never going to be the great midfielder that he was supposed to be and uh, I think like he saw glimpses of, glimpses of his quality in that game uh, passing the ball to Mark Overmars who was a player more Overmars that never never um, fulfilled the expectations of Barcelona he was uh, one of those mm. panic buyings after Figo left to Real Madrid and this is probably the best moment of Overmars playing for uh, playing for Barcelona were among the many people who were doubting Xavi's ability to inherit the mantle of Pep Guardiola across the Daily Mail with that famous the best footballers in the world and Xavi headline. Um, also going out in the second group stage, uh, Arsenal, um, I think we should mention them. Um, there's kind of an accepted kind of narrative that the 0-3-0-4 was the big miss for Arsenal in not winning the Champions League under Wenger, but you can make a case that 0-1-0-2 was as well. I mean, they, they beat Bayer Leverkusen 4-1 at Highbury in one of the best displays that season. Perez, Henri, Vieira and Bergkamp all scored in that game. Now, some of those players would continue to be good, but I think that was possibly the last season when Bergkamp you know, was at his absolute peak. But the big problem for Arsenal was they lost... They didn't win any of their six away games, which is strange because in the Premier League, um, they didn't lose away from home all season. It's one of the few times it's ever happened. Um, and that season in the Premier League, they're one of the, the only team in top flight history to score in all 38 
uh, of their league games as well. So, you know, it was one of their best uh, league performances and they weren't quite able to translate it to, to European football. You know, they lost at Deportivo um, and it just felt like every time they went away from home, they kind of fell to bits a bit. But I think it really is a kind of missed opportunity for Arsenal this season and people kind of forget about that. At the same time, I think that the, the level of uh, the group Arsenal was involved in uh, was astonishing. Uh, they were playing against uh, Bayer Leverkusen, the runner-up of that competition, Deportivo La Coruña and Juve. They were all together in the same group. Uh, so that was never going to be easy for Arsenal. And uh, they managed to get seven points in that group. Not enough, obviously. Yeah, I mean, actually... If you'd asked me a few weeks ago about the second group stage, I'd have been like, I don't like it. But having gone through these seasons, the, the second group stage is brilliant every season. You know, as as um, Alvarez is there, you know, the groups are so strong and there's so many good games come out of it. But one game that wasn't a very good one in the second group stage was Bayern going to Manchester United for a 0-0 draw. Uh, that was enough for both of them to go through. I think it was the penultimate game of, of their group. I remember that game very fondly, if that's the right word, because... Uli Hoeneß, then the Bayern general manager, still or maybe he'd just become president, afterwards said, well, this was a game for football gourmets, a tactical masterclass from Bayern. And I thought, come on, you must be joking. So as a very young and inexperienced journalist, I wrote an article uh, the next day saying, well, uh, what the sausage um, factory owner Uli Hoeneß understands as gourmet football is perhaps not everybody else's um, same idea. And then two days later, I had the fright of my life when I was walking down Oxford Street and who calls me on my mobile phone? Uli Hoeneß to complain about me being disrespectful and what does it have to do with him being a sausage factory owner? You know, you can't just write about the football. Why do I have to become so personal? And I was just found myself just stammering. I don't know what I said, but um, it was an unforgettable experience. Was that the worst experience you've had? Uh, yeah, very journalist. good, James. <laughs> anyway, from sausages now to last ketchup. <laughs> Woof! I said, hey, that was the sound of the summer, of course, as the Champions League campaign 0102 swung into the knockout stages. Bayer Leverkusen had seen off Arsenal in their group. As Alvarez says, a tough one with Juve and Deportivo. And they would have more of that kind of thing for the other English sides. After Arsenal came Liverpool in the quarters. Obviously, Last Ketchup, that song, was the highlight of everyone's 2002. And it was so big that they even got asked to play at the uh, UEFA Cup final in Seville the following year in 2003. Obviously, the Mourinho versus O'Neill final. Um, and there's quite a lot of ketchup-related uh, aftermath in that because um, O'Neill, when he then left Sunderland and De Canio took over, uh, the first thing De Canio did was ban ketchup because he said the players were too That's unstrict because they'd been having too much ketchup. Do you think so he, he actually meant the no, song? Go on. Yes, he could have done. You know, who knows? Who knows? Uh, just a word on Las Ketchup, um, that uh, lovely band from the early 2000s. Uh, they called the band like that... Uh, before their father. Their father was called Tomate, Tomato, and uh, he was a flamenco teacher in Spain and uh, quite a famous singer as well. Very nice, Alvaro. Anyway, uh, so now Liverpool in the quarterfinals for Bayer Leverkusen. A 1-0 defeat at Anfield, but then, Rafa, was this one of the most famous victories in this campaign for Top Muller's team, uh, the 4-2 win over Liverpool in Leverkusen? I think it is. I think that was the marquee performance of them. I mean, they had lots of really good results, as, as Duncan mentioned, especially against those those big sides, including these English teams. But 
to beat Liverpool, a formidable Liverpool 4-2 at home after that 1-0 defeat was was a real statement, I think. Michael Ballack had a fantastic game, scored a brace and I think Berbatov scored as well. It was just, they were just too much. They were so powerful and while they did concede a couple, um, they really played Liverpool off the park at some spells. It was one of only two times that season uh, that Liverpool let in four goals. Um, you know, they were. It was that season when Julio was in hospital for quite a while, and, and Thompson, Phil Thompson, took over. But you know, their defensive prowess was their main uh, concern. You know, they they got through the group stage, the second group stage, having scored four and conceded four. So you know, this wasn't a an all out attack Liverpool team. This was a team that was built on defence. So yeah, for Leverkusen to do that uh, was massive. And I think the only sad thing about it was it did deny us the semi finals in the Champions League of Barcelona against Real Madrid and Liverpool against Manchester United which would have been a you know a nice little matchup. Instead it was Bayer Leverkusen who uh, completed the set in the semi-finals by doing Man United. United who had beaten Deportivo in the quarterfinals but lost David Beckham in the process. Now this was huge. Beckham was suffering a broken metatarsal uh, after a two-footed challenge by Argentine midfielder Aldo Dusha. Uh, he was given an 8 weeks recovery prognosis but there were only seven weeks to go before the World Cup in Korea and Japan. Well, metatarsals were still very fashionable at the time. It, only later that they became a little bit of a cliche and, and, and passe, really. But uh, back in being ahead of the curve, as he very much was uh, back then, uh, often in the, on the covers of the face and, and things like that, uh, was sure to get that injury first. Well, he was on the cover of the Sun newspaper, I say newspaper, but the Sun publication, uh, shortly after this, Beck Us Pray was the headline. They had a picture of the midfielder's foot and the notion was that everyone in the country would touch the foot when uh, spoon-bending psychic Uri Geller appeared on GMTV, which was a popular morning show, and uh, that basically psychic energy would be united and concentrated around the country on restoring uh, David's foot, which was obviously seen as absolutely crucial. Geller had... Um obviously claimed credit for the slightly moving ball when Gary McAllister took the penalty in Euro 96 against England. If you look at the replay, just before McAllister hits it, it moves ever so slightly. That Geller claimed that was him. I'm not sure that's been proven. But, um, but yeah, I mean, you can argue that this time it worked. You know, Beckham did just about make it back for the World Cup. Um, but it's hard to it's hard to overstate how massive a thing this was. You know, you mentioned it was on the front page of, of newspapers, but... You know, Tony Blair interrupted a cabinet meeting to bring it up as a point of discussion. Um, you know, Aldo Dusha became this kind of figure of hate in the in the media, and he came up with an amazing reply when they said, "You know, you've injured David Beckham. Is what you know? What have you got to say?" And he said, "I don't need to speak with him about this because if this happened to a player from Deportivo, nobody would care." And you know, he's right. Man United are in the semi-finals. Fergie is dreaming of that Glasgow final. It's a two-two draw at Old Trafford. And then Leverkusen 1 1 Rafa. Bashter into Nerville, shot on the turn, 1 1. Brilliantly taken goal by Oliver Nerville. And the start of Roy Keane going mad um, that year came out after the game, slamming the attitude of the Man United players, uh, saying that Man United deserved to be in the final. They should have been in the final, but uh, the team didn't deliver, etc., etc. Really questioning their their appetite and their application, and of course also making I think a prediction about uh, United maybe losing out in the title race domestically, which came true as well that year. 
Leverkusen were behind three times in the semi-final across both legs, levelled every time and of course went through then on away goals. The scenes at the, at the end of the second game, plus Todd Moller dancing across the pitch as the PA in Leverkusen played three Lions in a final insult to their visitors. More like top loader, really, if you think about it. But um, yeah, I mean, the context for United season, uh, you know, Ferguson had announced at the start that he was going to retire, um, you know, and it was all set up for, you know, Champions League final in Glasgow, retire, United win the Champions League, see you later. But he changed his mind halfway through. And as Rafa mentioned there, they were pretty bad in the league. They had six home defeats in the league that season, which is the most since the 1970s. Only David Moyes has, has since uh, done worse than that. Um, obviously, by the time of the semi-final, Ferguson had done a U-turn and signed a big new contract. But um, yeah, that that Manchester United team, Van Nistelrooy was incredible that season. You know, won PFA Player of the Year, scored ten goals in the Champions League, top scorer in the Premier League. But you know, overall, the the defence in particular uh, and Barthez made a couple of howl or look quite a lot of howlers in in various games in the Champions League. So you know, it was definitely the start of that decline at United that was only really arrested when they signed Ronaldo and and later Rooney. So. That business, by the way, of Sir Alex and, and Glasgow, the, the final, of course, that's his hometown, but it's also the place where supposedly his fascination with the European Cup began because he was there among 127,000 people who watched the 1960 final at Hamden Park where Real Madrid had that legendary 7-3 win over Eintracht Frankfurt with, what was it, four goals from Puskas and three for Di Stefano. Uh, but anyway, tough luck, Sir Alex. Bayer were in the final and on for a potential treble. What about, though, their opponents, Real Madrid? Well, they breeze through their second group with Panathinaikos, Sparta Prague and Porto, and then, in the quarterfinals, met Bayern again, Rafa, again. Yeah, they met again, and the game is really famous for what happened in the 11th minute of the first leg because Jeremy uh, of Real Madrid picks up the ball and he's not really going anywhere and it's a speculative shot from the edge of the box and... Everyone almost turns away because Oliver Kahn doesn't really get beaten from those kind of shots from that kind of distance, but it somehow bubbles across and over his arms into the net. Jeremy's going to shoot as well and does so and scores! What an astonishing goal and question marks over Oliver Kahn again here. That caused huge merriment in the Spanish press because they remembered Kahn as the guy who had thwarted Real Madrid a couple of years before. And led to Khan saying, well, I then have to win the game single-handedly in Madrid to get us through. Uh, Bayern did end up winning 2-1 in the first leg, but in the second leg they were beaten quite comfortably 2-0. And uh, that moment against Jeremy turned out to be a bit of a, a warning or maybe a foreshadowing what would happen to Khan three months later at an even bigger stage in, in an even bigger game where he made a similar mistake in the World Cup final. Oliver Kahn was very well respected um, in Spain. They all knew that he was a great goalkeeper. But it's true that uh, he could have done much better um, with that Jeremy shot. And uh, that actually was a decider uh, for the tire. Uh, I remember that uh, that game was uh, the second leg. Uh, came with a lot of controversy because uh, allegedly Salihatmisic, the Bosnian player, uh, said after beating Real Madrid uh, in Germany that Real Madrid... Uh, in their pants, literally, in the important games. And I remember that that uh, created like a build-up to the game because uh, 
you know, Real Madrid fans and Real Madrid players didn't take that well. And uh, there was the feeling of revenge among the Real Madrid camp. They had to beat Bayern, but also they had to beat the arrogance of uh, Salihadmisic. And they managed to win that game 2-0 uh, at the end. And that was uh, one of the most important steps towards uh, winning La Novena. Well, then they had another big step straight afterwards because they had a semi-final with Barcelona. You talked about Barcelona with the dawn of Xavi uh, against Liverpool in the second group stage. Real Madrid, though, going to camp now and winning 2-0 in the first leg of the semi uh, with a pair of delicious chips from Zidane and that man, Steve McManaman. Yeah, that man, Steve McManaman, who actually, when you think about it, his contribution to Real Madrid was uh, bigger than uh, the memory can keep. I mean, because he was signed as a winger and uh, he managed to become a really good midfielder for Real Madrid. And he was always there. I think the problem with McManaman at Real Madrid is that he wasn't a very good squad player. When he was on the bench, I think that he needed to have football and starts regularly to become involved. And... Uh, when Ronaldo was signed and uh, when the Galactico era started, McManaman started losing a little bit his place at Real Madrid. But uh, that uh, semi-final between Barcelona and Real Madrid was so important for them both, James, because you have to take into consideration this. Deportivo de la Coruña had won the Spanish Cup at Santiago Bernabéu, in which it was called el centenariazo, because uh, Real Madrid was celebrating 100 years uh, when playing that final at the Santiago Bernabéu and Deportivo de la Coruña beat them at Santiago Bernabéu, their own ground. And La Liga was won by Valencia that year, in 2002. So Real Madrid and Barcelona, they only had one card to play. And it was the Champions League. And it was Real Madrid that played it. Through they went to the final, the 15th of May, 2002. Jonathan Hamilton says the Proclaimers were cocooned in a giant football, appearing as the segments of the ball peeled away before giving a flawless rendition of I'm going to be, brackets, 500 miles. Should the final be remembered more for this than Zidane's goal? Of course not, Jonathan. Let's talk about the final. Game gets underway and Real Madrid aren't hanging about. Raul. Another goal for Raúl in the Champions League final. He scored in Paris two years before and he scored that day. Uh, and it was a very clever goal by Raúl because uh, he got a, a lot of instinct as a striker. I remember that it was a long uh, throw by Roberto Carlos and uh, Raúl just uh, caught and guarded all Bayer Leverkusen defense and he scored uh, with a sneaky shot that I think the goalkeeper could have saved, really. It is a tight contest, though. Just five minutes later, Lucio equalises. There was a lot of battling spirit in this Bayer team, Rafa. Well, um, I think that is a contested statement, James. But certainly that, that game, Ooh. they did come back and they, they played really, really well. Um, I think there's a good argument to say that they might even have been the better side overall. I think they, they pushed Real Madrid very hard. They created chances. It was a very open game. And I remember being in the stadium and thinking... Leverkusen can really do this. Real Madrid, despite Leverkusen's results, which were very, very good, I think still seemed to be surprised just with the amount of resistance, the amount of quality they came up against on the night. And then shortly before half-time, this happens. Zidane! 
Rafa, you were there. Was there a moment of stunned silence afterwards as everybody took in what had just happened? I don't think stunned silence because the Real Madrid fans who were vastly outnumbering the, the Leverkusen um, section, I think there was a very, very small crowd from Leverkusen. Virtually the whole city, I think, had travelled. It was, first of all, jubilation, but I think only then when you saw the replays did you understand just what a majestic moment of beauty you were privileged to watch. Um, it happened so quickly and the angle and the, the move was so, I think, unpromising. You just don't expect a goal to be scored. So the first moment was, oh, there's a goal. And then only later did you begin to realise what has actually happened. And I think I was lucky to to commentate on the game for, for UEFA and just remember really struggling for words to sum up the the ability and the the, the sheer technical skill and brilliance from Zidane at that very moment and I think even though there was still a half to play and there was still a lot of football to come and years to come you you felt three or four minutes after that goal you felt that you've you you had witnessed something historic uh, the goal was just so sublime and don't forget that the Zinedine Zidane was on right footed as well and he scored it with the left. So if you ask yeah. any football, probably if you ask any footballer, what do they think about that volley? They will probably applaud it the difficulty of the execution, even more than the beauty, because it was but a right-footed player scoring that. I think that takes away from the goal a little bit, because I think his technique isn't quite as smooth as it would have been on his right-hand side. So he look, it is a great goal, but he does look slightly awkward as he as he swings. I've I've never been a a complete advocate of that goal. Utam Shank. Is feeling controversial. Is that Zidane goal really that good at Os Otum, or is it glorified because of the person who scored it? Uh, Football State of Mind MP says, what about the Roberto Carlos cross before it? Is it bad or intentional? So just to break things down, you've got a Santiago Solari kind of return pass that's, I think, a bit over here, but Roberto Carlos is bursting down the wing and he beats Schneider, but he only has time to basically, the ball bounces, and he basically just has time to hook it back over his shoulder without even looking, and it falls perfectly for Zidane, who then unleashes this wonderful swivelling left-footed volley. Intentional, the hooked cross, or not? I think like he just wanted to put the ball in the mixer. He didn't okay. look at, uh, at his right. He didn't know who was there. Fair. And what about this notion that Zidane's goal wasn't all that? Ah, oh, I'm just watching it again. It it's is not good, is it, Raph? Perfection. Lucky. The way he swivels his whole body. It's not just a volley. The ball is behind him. So he has to stretch the leg first and then he makes almost a 360-degree yeah, turn as he hits it. It's just imagine, unbelievable. Imagine that he gets his other leg off the ground at the same time. It would have looked a lot better. He didn't have to do that. No, he didn't have to, but it would have looked better. And it, I don't know, it just, uh, I just... I think that there, there was a goal, Duncan, that uh, probably is a fair contestant in terms of uh, beauty uh, with Zidane's goal. It was Gareth Bale in the yeah. 2018 final. Uh, that goal was very nice as well. But I think that is more difficult what Zidane did because the ball is coming from pretty much the sky. How do you how do you hunt that ball in the air with the left foot? I mean, if you have played football, I'm sure you have. Uh, few times doing that is almost impossible, even for a, any professional player. Possibly, I have to say, consensus seems to be that this was the greatest goal in Champions League final history, at least until Gareth Bale's effort for Real Madrid against Liverpool. It was far from over, though, in this game at Hampton Park. Bayer still believed, piling on the pressure. Ica Casillas had come on, 
And in the final minutes, the, the seven that were actually added on after the 90, he was like one of those goalkeeping cats as Bayern pulled on the pressure, even throwing their, 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 well, throwing their butt up forward. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Madrid only had two shots in the whole of the second half. Um, it really was a kind of backs-to-the-wall performance. And I think people forget that Casillas came on. He's one of only two goalkeepers to, to ever come on as a sub in a Champions League final. Um, the other one, obviously, Manuel Almunia because of uh, Lehmann's uh, red card in 2006. Um, and it's arguable that Casillas won the game for them. You know, makes a number of really good saves at the end. Um, and like you say, Butt was pretty much up front towards the end. I think he, he spent more time in the opposition penalty area than his own in the closing few minutes, which normally would be a bit of a uh, you know, roll of the dice. But as we know, he is a, he's a goal-scoring legend, so it made sense. And it, it was a turning point in Casillas' career as well, because the season um, he lost his place to Cesar, the goalkeeper who started in that final, and uh, he regained the, the 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 start at Real Madrid after that uh, after that game in Glasgow. Uh, and in fact, he ended up playing in that World Cup as well uh, as the starting uh, goalkeeper for Spain. Just because Cañizares uh, picked a really really strange injury uh, before the World Cup when uh, allegedly uh, a bottle of perfume fell on his toe, and then uh, he couldn't play that World Cup. So. It all seemed to be set uh, for Casillas to have a quiet spring and a quiet summer, not being the starter for Real Madrid, neither for Spain, and he ended up playing the Champions League final, being the hero, and he ended up playing the World Cup. If you ever want to sum up the difference between English and Spanish football, I always think Canizares doing that injury with some cologne is, you know, quite nice, and Dave Besant did it with a bottle of salad cream. So, you know, different, <laughs> but the same. Real Madrid had triumphed their ninth European title. Little did they know that the decima would be another 12 years away, but for now they could celebrate. As for poor Bayer Leverkusen, or should I say Neverkusen, Rafa, what happened to their treble dreams? Well, this was the last of their treble attempts, and of course the most important one. Three days earlier they had lost the German Cup final against Schalke 4 2 in Berlin. I think they managed to deal with that because they still had the Champions League final to come didn't dwell on it too much. A week earlier than the cup final, they had um, the season had finished with them again being runners-up as uh, Dortmund had, had won that year under Matthias Sommer in charge. Uh, again, Leverkusen had the initiative and in the end just ran out of ran out of steam, lost a terrible game against Nuremberg that they should have never lost and ended up with nothing but plaudits and admiration for their football but no trophies to show for. And of course... They haven't won anything since either. Is it from this year that they're known as Neverkusen, or was that their, their nickname even before? No, I think, I mean, in Germany they were known as Vizekusen at the time, sort of Weiss, you know, Weisskusen, as in runners-up, or second. And then I think the Neverkusen tag really started to stick after the 2002 Champions League final, where people were much more aware internationally about their history and uh, that lack of success. But they never really got, got close anymore, I mean... Um, not in the Champions League, um, not even in, in the Bundesliga. That was really their their high point. And Rainer Kalmund, who's their, who used to be their, their heavyweight general manager, um, afterwards said, well, if you can guarantee me that we'd finish runners-up in all competitions, I would definitely sign that right now. I'll take that because I think he understood just how difficult it would be, especially with all these big players leaving for that uh, near success to be repeated. And of course it wasn't. Leverkusen were very nearly relegated the following season. Topmüller lost his job and they never quite recovered as a European force since. 
there is a, obviously a little parallel in England with Leeds as well. You know, obviously didn't get quite as close as Leverkusen, but you know had a couple of seasons where they really were about to break into the uh, and challenge at the top, um, and then quickly fell away. Um, so you mm. know, it can happen. Very quick question here from John Sands, who says, "Whatever happened to Klaus Topmüller? He had one more spell." Um, in the Bundesliga with Hamburg that didn't really work out just for one year 2003-2004 and then he became national manager of Georgia for a couple of years tried very hard I think to get another job but it never really worked out for him and in the end uh, he retired a few years ago I see well that was Champions League 2001-2002 more of that kind of thing next week still to come on today's show Jack and Michael facing the general knowledge round of the quiz but next up we're going to be looking ahead to the weekend in Germany You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Raphael, the sweet sounds of can there with vitamin C. Your choice to introduce our little Bundesliga preview. We've got round 26 getting underway this Friday night with the Berlin Derby and all sorts of other sizzling encounters. What should people be looking out for, Rafa? Well, there's some really interesting games. The, the Berlin Derby you mentioned, um, it's, it's important uh, for obvious reasons. Union managed to beat Hertha in their first Bundesliga meeting of the two clubs back in November. Um, there was a lot of um, aggression on and off the pitch. This one's going to be a little bit different, unfortunately. No one in the uh, Olympia Stadion, but only one point separating the two sides in 11th and 12th, respectively. So at least sort of for the internal Berlin Championship, a very, very important game. And of course, Hertha under Bruno Labbadia making this fantastic start uh, to the restart, winning 3-0 at Hoffenheim, looking to keep this up. The pick of the bunch is, though, easily Gladbach playing Leverkusen, two of the informed sides, if you can say that after one match day back, but certainly two of the most exciting teams in the Bundesliga this year. Gladbach are third, Leverkusen are fifth, two points between them and uh, a huge game. For Leverkusen, they want to get into the Champions League places. A win would help them uh, put real pressure on both Gladbach and Leipzig. And Gladbach, I think, apart from wanting to stay in the top four, still have, I think, an outside chance of of winning or at least running uh, Bayern Munich and Dortmund close as far as the title is concerned. So two super entertaining teams on Saturday uh, afternoon and um, I think a game full of quality because one thing we have seen earlier as I said to Alvaro is that the technical teams those with the best players with the best quality seem to be dealing best with the ghost game scenario and two of those sides coming up against each other should really be very very entertaining Right, quality like Kai Havertz who was sensational Monday when Leverkusen won 4-1 away at Werder Bremen Kai Havertz who we talked of a lot on that tag of the crown prince of German football, but the numbers haven't always backed up that, that notion. He's been a, a, a promise, I think, perhaps. Is that fair? But in this game, he was absolutely colossal. Yeah, I don't think that is fair because last season, his numbers were unbelievably good. The, the first half of the season was slightly less sensational by, by his standards, but still decent. And since the, the season has kicked off again in January, He's been absolutely superb once more. Funnily enough, Peter Bosch felt he didn't have a good game uh, despite scoring two goals. And I, th- I guess he's kind of right. I mean, in the second half, he had a couple of chances, but he, he struggled a little bit to to play in this role as a, as a false nine. 
which uh, Bosch had devised for him for that game. Be interesting to see if he plays in a similar position or maybe there'll be a more recognized striker in front of him like um, uh, Lucas Salario, for example. Uber Morgen by Mark Forster, riding high in the German charts right now, much like Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich, who next Tuesday will be meeting each other in Der Klassiker. They've got live games on BT this Saturday, Rafa. We're going to have Dortmund, first of all, at Wolfsburg, and then we'll follow that up with Bayern taking on Eintracht Frankfurt. Are you looking forward to this? I'm really looking forward to this. I mean, we have three really interesting games on Saturday, at least three. Gladbach, Leverkusen, we talked about. Dortmund have to go to Wolfsburg, and Wolfsburg have one of the best defences in the league. They don't score a lot of goals, but they don't concede many. That's why they're in six. So a real test, I think, for, for Dortmund's attacking prowess, if you will. And we hope that Jen Sancho will be back in action again, um, having started as a sub in the derby. And Bayern at home to Frankfurt. I mean, Frankfurt are really struggling at the moment. They are only 13th. Uh, not too many points off the uh, relegation places, certainly the relegation playoff place. Uh, only five points between them and Dusseldorf. So on paper, it looks as if Bayern will find it fairly easy to score a lot of goals. But everything that will happen this weekend, we will see through the prism, as you said, of the big meeting on Tuesday with Dortmund host Bayern. Um, and it's going to be possibly the decisive game of the season. So couldn't be more interesting and a more you know exciting run-in as it stands. Four points between Bayern Munich in first place and Dortmund at present. Bayern on a seven-game winning streak on either side of the suspension. Uh, you mentioned Jadon Sancho potentially coming back. Who would make way after the sensational Dortmund performance in the Ruhr Derby last weekend? Well, I think, unfortunately, Torgan Hazard, who had a fantastic game but uh, was supposed to be on the bench for Gio Reyna, Gio Reyna getting injured, a 17-year-old, just in the warm-up. So with Sancho coming back, I think it's likely that Favre will shuffle up a bit. But at the same time, if Sancho's not 100% fit, Tuesday looms so large that maybe he will be rested and, and not be too risked unduly on Saturday. Well, whoever plays, it's definitely worth uh, missing Midsummer Murders for, I would say. Well, you might say that, but not everybody, Duncan, according to what I've been reading. Uh, Frankfurt won the reverse fixture in November, beating Bayern Munich 5-1. What are the prospects of them doing that again, Rafa? Well, that was the game that really changed Bayern's season because um, Niko Kovac was fired the next day. Niko Kovac, of course, who had moved from Frankfurt to Bayern. And since then, uh, Bayern have been a team transformed or a team reinstalled, if you will, because they look much more like the usual Bayern we've all come to um, I don't know if admire is the right word for many listeners, but at least come Respect. to expect. And Frankfurt are, I think, not in a position this time to put much of a fight. I think Bayern, the way that they are going and not having any major injury problems, will be very, very strong and will see this as a as a good warm-up game for for Tuesday. Well, it's all live on BT with us and a very large Owen Hargreaves. That's from 2 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. So that's nice, eh? Before we wrap up the first leg of our Langcock semi, uh, for more on those Bundesliga fixtures, let's get over to Ben with Lee Price. 
Thank you very much, Jimbo. I'm on the line with Lee Price from Paddy Power. And uh, just a little note to Jack Lang, who um, always listens to this part and fast forward. What are you doing, Jack? Everyone needs to listen to this bit. Anyway, Lee, let's go to the Bundesliga, where there is, again, some real football this weekend. We'll start on Friday, please. Give us some numbers for the Berlin Derby. <laughs> yeah, these two aren't just neighbours in Berlin, but they're also next door to each other in the league table, separated by just 17 miles and one point. Good old Google. The hosts Hertha struck three past Hoffenheim last time out, and it's four to one they score three or more here, while Union, which I feel deeply uncomfortable saying out loud, had an unenviable return against Bayern. We make both teams comfortably safe from relegation and with even less chance of European qualification, so this game might be one of the few fixtures left for them with something on it. Should be a good one. All right, they're moving on. How about then two goals or more for Erling Brute Haaland versus Wolfsburg? Ben, I hope you sat down for this. In fact, I know you sat down. I can see you. But you're going to be completely dumbfounded to hear that Erling Haaland is odds-on to score in this game. I know. Crazy. He's reaching Messi and Ronaldo levels of dominance in the goal-scoring betting markets. He's so popular with our punters. And let's face it, he isn't far off those two in actual goal-scoring either. So we make him 7-2, a very short price, to score twice in this fixture, or 16-1 to to get a hat-trick. His team Dortmund are strong favourites for this at 4-6, with Wolfsburg priced at 10-3, and the draw, which I always like to tip, 11-4. And finally, we've been talking about them when they were Neverkusen, but can Leverkusen get a win against Borussia Mönchengladbach? Hmm, these two teams are technically, arguably, just about in the title race, aren't they? to my untrained, newly Bundesliga-following eyes anyway, which is why this is the tightest-priced fixture of the weekend. Gladback or M. Gladback, as they're hilariously known on paddypower.com for space reasons, are slight favourites of 13-10, to 10, with Leverkusen 7-4. The draw, interestingly, is least likely of all at 13-5. to 5. What was I saying about back in the draw? Kai Havertz is a very popular young man. He scored twice on Monday, so he's 2-1 to one to score any time here, and that could be value. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply and when the fun stops, stop. Time now for the general knowledge round of this semi-final between Michael Cox and Jack Lang. Hey, welcome back, Michael Cox and Jack Lang. Hello. All good? Hi, Jack. Hello. All right. This is tight. Need I remind you, just one point between the pair of you in that opening round, it's general knowledge up next. And, uh, Michael, you're going first. Here comes question one. At which club did Pippo Inzaghi make his senior debut? I think it's... I think it's Piacenza. Is correct. Question two. Who scored Aston Villa's winner in the 1982 European Cup final? Uh, was that Peter With? It was. Question three. Which German team are known as Die Fohlen, the Foles? Uh, saw this the other day. Is it Hoffenheim? It's not. It's Borussia Mönchengladbach. Oh, of course it is. Oh. Question Damn. four. Which is the missing name from this sequence of permanent Tottenham managers of the 90s? Peter Shreves, Ozzy Ardiles, our missing man, Christian Gross and then George Graham. Who's the permanent Tottenham manager between Ardiles and Gross? Uh, Jerry Francis. Correct. 
Question 5. Which two Spain players missed in the penalty shootout against England at Euro 96? Oh, God. Nick Miller hates you, Michael. <laughs> I think Nadal hit the bar. I think Belsoy scored. Oh, Spain players from that era are quite forgettable. Uh, I will go for Alfonso. No, it was Hierro, Fernando Hierro. Oh, okay. And Nadal. So you were halfway there, which is pretty impressive. Well, that gives you three points from the general knowledge and a grand total thus far of seven points out of ten. Jack, opportunity here for you to maybe even take the lead at the halfway point of this semi-final. Here come your general knowledge questions. Uh, question one. At which club did Alessandro Del Piero make his senior debut? I'm not really sure, so I'm going to guess that it's a trick question and say Juventus. No, it was Padova. Mm. Question two. Who scored Nottingham Forest winner in the 1980 European Cup final? Shamefully don't know, and I'm not going to embarrass myself. I Tell guess. me all the people it isn't. Uh, I, won't, <laughs> I won't bother. I'll pass. Okay. All right, the answer is John Robertson. Question three. Which German team are known as De Dino, the dinosaur? Mm. That's annoying because I knew Michael's, but I'm not <laughs> sure I know. I'm not sure I know this one. Uh, I definitely don't know this one. De Dino. Uh, let's go for Mainz. Hamburg was mm. the answer. Question four. Which is the missing name from this list of permanent Everton managers in the 1990s? Howard Kendall, Mike Walker, our missing man, then Howard Kendall again, then Walter Smith. Who's the man in the middle? After Mike Walker, before Howard Kendall again. Howard Wilkinson? No, it was Joe Royal. And question five. At Euro 96, one player missed for the Netherlands on their way to a penalty shootout exit to France. Who was it? Was it Dennis Bergkamp? It was not. It was Clarence Seedorf. Excellent. So, at the end of that round, Jack, you scored nil out of five for your general knowledge meaning that Michael now has a four-point lead and his own home leg to come. Wow. That's heavy, heavy karma, isn't it? Well, <laughs> I guess we'll see. I guess we'll see. But, but Michael, we, we talked about extra gears. You might have had some today. Yeah, obviously pleased to have improved my performance. Uh, I, I, my audio cut out. I didn't hear the answer to the uh, dinosaur question. Who's, oh, right, who's it was that? Hamburg. Hamburg. Oh, Okay, no, yeah. I did not know that. Interesting. No, Thanks. neither did I. But Nick Miller did, crucially. Excellent. <laughs> Michael's answers are, by the way, coming in front of a sponsor's board, listener, in case you were wondering. Uh, excellent. Well, we'll join you both again on Sunday for what's going to be a whopping second leg to this semi-final, answering questions, the both of you, on the Arsene Wenger era at Arsenal. Many thanks to you for the moment, though, and best of luck with your revision. Thank you. Thanks, James. Wow, Alvaro, this must be all too familiar for you. Losing the first leg 7-3, 
when you've already played your own specialist subject. I know. I've been there. I bought the shirt, and I am out now. I'm just an spectator yeah. of the semi-final. It's a it's a haunting tribute to uh, European Cup finals at Hampden Park, at least. So that's nice. Very very nice indeed. Okay, well we will have the second leg for what it's worth. In our show, we'll be recording Sunday evening. Available Sunday night, Monday morning. It'll be a busy one, that. We'll have second leg of the quiz, Bundesliga action, a throw forward to Tuesday's De Classica, and, of course, a Premier League retro section. We'll be discussing 98-99, which was the season when everybody was beating up referees. Do hope you'll be tuning in for that, a listener. For now, many, many thanks to Alvaro, to Duncan and to Rafa, and we'll catch up with you at the weekend. Bye for now. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football network at The Totally Show on Twitter. And make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy Knees Media.